This is part one of a two-part podcast with Mark Seaman on dependency injection and dependency rejection in F-sharp. The second part will be published in a few weeks. Apologies for the slightly lower than usual audio quality. I made a mistake when recording the call with Mark. This is a No Double Podcast. I'm Brian Hogan. And from Copenhagen, I'm joined by Mark Seaman, author, speaker, and programmer. Thank you very much for taking time out of your Sunday, Mark. Oh, thank you for having me. So to start off, Mark, for people who don't know you, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Well, so as you said, I'm a programmer. I'm, I've um, been doing that for about 20 years now, maybe 25, depending on how you measure it. And uh, I also, like 10, 15 years ago, decided that I wanted to start blogging and speaking and doing stuff like that. So I've been doing that increasingly uh, more and more uh, since then. And I've been you know, independent the last six years, so still doing programming for clients and also doing you know, public speaking videos um, for Pluralsight and Clean Coders and uh, a, a book and lots of blog uh, articles. Clean Coders is a video site? That is a, a video site uh, owned by Robert T. Martin, uh, Uncle Bob. And he started doing lots of, of videos himself about clean coding, uh, you know, based on, on the book he wrote about clean code. And then he started also inviting other people as well. So he has Corey Haynes and Doc Norton and a couple of other people. And, you know, I was lucky enough to be invited to join as well. Very nice. Yeah. And you used to be, I remember, a C-sharp programmer. And now you are, is it mainly an F-sharp programmer? Is that how you would describe yourself? Um, that's, if you if you want to look at my latest uh, commercial exploits, if you will, what I actually earned money on, then it's it's F-sharp, yes. Um, I used to be a C-sharp uh, programmer many years ago, um, and I can still do, do C-sharp, but I prefer F-sharp these days. Uh, but I also look a lot at, um, I write a lot of Haskell code these days as well. Um, but no one has actually paid me to do Haskell code yet. I hope, you know, one day that's going to happen, but let's, let's see. <laughs> I, I, may, I may be remembering this incorrectly, but I think the last time I had you on, you were you describe yourself as making money from C-sharp, but you much preferred mm-hmm. F-sharp. So yes. that has progressed. That has progressed. Yeah, that's that's probably so. I, I wonder, you know, if anyone ever pays me to do Haskell, then what my new, you know, future language is going to be. Or maybe it's just going to go back to something simpler. That that might be the case as well. I don't know. Um, but I, I, I do enjoy F-sharp a lot still, um, but I also think Haskell is interesting for other reasons. Um, but I'm perfectly happy, happy with F-sharp. So how did it happen that, you know, at the time we spoke, I think it was maybe, I don't know, even a year ago, maybe a little bit more, mm-hmm. it it sounded like you wanted to work in F-sharp, but there weren't commercial projects available, right. and now it sounds like you have more than enough. Um, I, I've had a, a pretty good run with the F-sharp jobs the last year or so, but it sort of started, I think it started maybe late 2016, um, whereas the Case was exactly as you described it before that I was doing C sharp programming for a living and uh, F sharp for fun, uh, and then all of a sudden it, it ended up being F sharp for fun and profit, which is not my website by the way, but a website that belongs to um, Scott Larshin, which who does a who does a great job of, of writing that. That's a total you know um, digression there. I'm sorry about that, uh, but. Um, yeah, what happened in I think mid midways through 2016 that I actually began to you know 
people started to contact me and, and ask me whether I could help them doing various things with F-Sharp. Some companies just wanted me to come and sort of give them an introduction to F-Sharp or maybe a couple of days helping them out with, you know, getting started with F-Sharp. But I've also had a one or two clients that actually wanted me to write, you know, real production code in F-Sharp for them, um, which has been a, a great experience and just all basically all I hoped for in the sense that F-Sharp is that great language that not only is it a good toy language, if you will, uh, or not not a toy language, but a good language for playing around with. But it actually turns out to also be a very productive language when you want to write real, you know, production software. Um, so it actually does translate. Uh, so very happy about that. Yes. Are these companies, uh, without revealing anything that's proprietary, <laughs> are these companies taking F Sharp to do small parts of their system, or are they trying to build whole systems in F Sharp? Um. I have customers uh, that fit both of those descriptions. The first one that I had was the short story about that was that I did a lot of C-sharp development work for them. And uh, many years ago, well, not many, but more than two years ago, we ran into a problem where we um, we couldn't really figure out a good way to model a particular problem in, uh, in C-sharp. And we were actually debating various different alternatives uh, for how we would solve that particular business problem. And um, and then I said to them after we've been looking at all the options that we had in C-sharp, I said, well, we could also write this small portion that we were having trouble with. We could write that in F-sharp. And it basically, you know, I, I wrote a little prototype and it's just like 20, 20 lines of F-sharp code. And I said, this is what it would look like. And we could package that so that it looks like a class from the outside so that C-sharp code could call into that. And it would return something that again looked like object oriented code coming back. And then they could just write, you know, all their C sharp client code around that and just put it in a little library that they could call into. Um, but I wrote that little prototype and, and, and showed it to them and say, I, I know that you don't know F sharp at all. Um, but that would be, you know, it wouldn't be much more than this. Would you be interested in, in having that as a solution? So you need to maintain that little, you know, a sharp piece of, of, of a sharp source code. And they said, well, that's, that actually looks pretty good. So we did that and it turned out, you know, my prototype was maybe 20 lineup codes. And I think it turned out to be like a hundred lines of F sharp code before we were actually done, but it wasn't really that bad. And, uh, and then we just packaged that into a class and, uh, you know, kept on going with all the C sharp code. And then, you know, after the project was done, I was off to other, other things. And then, you know, a, a year later, I, I ran into one of the developers back then and he told me, so you know that F-sharp code you left us with? And I was like, oh, 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 oh what's going to happen now? It's, I'm, I'm going to be told that that was a bad idea. So I said, yes, you know, very cautiously. And, and then he says, well, we actually discovered that F-sharp is a really great language. So first of all, that file started to grow because they put more and more functionality into that. And then they decided that they might as well just start writing F-sharp code, you know, in general. So when they started doing new stuff now, um, they basically just said, well, let's let's write that library in F-sharp instead of, of doing that in C-sharp. So they basically changed uh, parts of their strategy based on that little seed that I planted there because I, you know, I was lucky enough that I actually planted uh, that particular little F-sharp seed on very fertile ground, if you will. And then I came back to them uh, to do more jobs, you know, a couple of months later on. And they basically just said, well, we need you to do this and this and this. And we be, you know, you probably want to do that in F sharp, don't you? And I just said, yeah, <laughs> I would love to. And they say, that's that's cool with us. And so I did that. So um, 
so yeah, that's one. Um, so that's one customer. Another customer that I had was basically um, they'd been um, they'd been looking at an old mainframe based system that they had been running for i don't know probably 20 30 years i don't know and they wanted to they needed to rewrite that that's the normal uh, situation with mainframe based systems that they're often very very expensive to operate um so there's actually a business case to be made for rewriting the system from scratch even though you know everyone says you shouldn't do that um and they'd actually been trying to do that in shisha for a year and basically getting nowhere and they made a strategic decision after not getting anywhere with you know the re- the big rewrite in shishab that they say well you know shishab is not going anywhere so let's try something else and and then they just said well we already know .net so maybe we should try shishab instead and see where that you know leads us and to be perfectly honest i don't know where they're they're still in that process so um for total disclosure here i'm not saying that they succeeded with that because there's still on that journey and and you know the deadline is not you know that it's still in the future so it's not that they're you know past the deadlines or anything so so i can't really say, say exactly where that's going to end but at least that's their motivation for for choosing f sharp simply that you know they tried with c sharp and it was too complex so maybe maybe it's going to be better with f sharp it's great that it seems that it's <laughs> catching on because it's, yeah. you know, I, I, you, as you know, Jess, we're uh, one of the big proponents of F-Sharp yeah. as well, and Rachel Reese has been on the program. Yes. But speaking of things that have, let's say, changed over time, you've written mm-hmm. a book in the past on dependency injection, and now you have become an advocate for something that you were calling dependency rejection. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Can yes. you explain that, please? And that's what right. we're going to talk about for the most of the podcast now. Yes, fair enough, fair enough. So, um, so I think the first thing that I need to make absolutely clear here is that it's not that I've turned 180 degrees around and basically say I'm not. I am not saying you know everything I told you six, seven years ago was a lie, and now you need to do something else. That's that's actually not the message. Um, but basically, the message is, or, or, or the the um, the way that I try to explain it is that yes, I did write this book, um, Dependency Injection in .NET back in 2011 and there's by the way there is a second edition coming on on that Uh, it's in the works at the moment Um, but I did write that book uh, back then and also around that same time frame I started to get interested in F sharp and I what happened then you know the next in the next many years was that I became increasingly interested in F sharp and functional programming uh, overall uh, and I started to blog a lot about F Sharp, and I started to you know do public speaking and so on. So it's fairly natural that then people come and ask me. So so they know that I wrote the book about dependency injection in in .NET, and then now I'm doing functional programming with F Sharp, and they say, you know, people come and ask me. So how do you do functional programming in F Sharp? It's a pretty decent, reasonable question to ask. Um, so I started to think about that. And and the short answer to all of this is that first of all, you know, dependency injection in object-oriented programming is a perfectly valid, very well-described uh, and very you know battle-proven way of dealing with decomposition and testability and stuff like that um, in C sharp and in Java and so on. So there's no reason to reject it there at all. Um, then if you're looking at a you know, a functional programming, it really depends on exactly what you mean by functional pro- programming. We can get back to that later on. Uh, but in a, you know, an impure or non-strict language like F-sharp, for example, there are various things where you basically can still do dependency injection um, 
And we can get back to various options for that. But then it turns out that if you really want to be, you know, strictly functional, and we can get back to what that means in a moment as well, um, dependency injection actually no longer works because, um, it can't be functional because one of the things that we really care about when we do functional programming is this thing called a pure function, which means that it, if fun, a pure function is something that is uh, deterministic and has no side effects. And basically, every, th- every time you inject a dependency into something, a dependency is almost always something that is either non-deterministic or has a side effect. Um, so that basically turns out to make everything impure if you're, if you're doing dependency injection. And that really doesn't work in a language like Haskell, for example. Um, so in that case, you simply have to find a different way of doing things. Um, and this is part of it where I must admit that I also sometimes, you know, do things a little bit for marketing reasons. But then I just thought, you know, what should we call that? And I thought, well, I have to, it's no longer dependency injection, but, you know, with, well, what about dependency rejection? That's funny. Um, so I, I sort of picked that, you know, particular phrase because it sort of describes what it is that we need to do, but it's also, it's also catchy and, and, you know, makes people ask questions. And I think that's wonderful. Um, but the short answer then is that, you know, it's, it's a way where you have to say we can't have, you have to reject the notion of dependencies uh, and think of different ways of separating, you know, your IO and your non-deterministic code from your deterministic, you know, pure code. And there are ways to do that in, in, for example, in languages like Haskell and also in F sharp. We can get back to those in a, in a second. But the idea is here that you have to reject the whole idea of dependencies and do separation of concerns in different ways. Um, and, and that's basically, you know, the message there. So again, you know, I'm not rejecting dependency injection for C sharp or Java. Uh, I think it's a perfectly valid thing to do. But then, you know, in functional programming, you have to think about things in a different way. You've used quite a lot of different terms there, and I want to just go through <laughs> them maybe sure. a little bit one by one without too much detail. But um, let's start with side effects. What do you mean by a side effect? Right. Okay. So um, so a side effect is um, basically what you could say if you, if you perform an operation and that has an observable um, if that changes the observable state of your system, that's a side effect. So what do you mean or what do I mean by saying the, the observable state of the system? Well, that really depends on exactly how you define that. Um, but some side effects are fairly clear cut. If you are changing the UI on the screen, for example, that is actually a, that changes the observable state of the system because something in the UI changed. So that is a side effect. If you send an email, that's a side effect. We can probably agree on that. If you delete a file or if you add a row to a database, that's those are all side effects. And I think most of us can agree on that. Um, what if you lock, you know, if you have, you know, a, a web-based system and you lock incoming HTTP requests to disk? Is that a side effect? It's a little bit philosophical, uh, you know, but you could say that it's not pure, but also in the, in the sense that if it, if it doesn't really change the behavior of the system, then it doesn't really matter whether it's locking or not. Um, so basically what I'm trying to say here is that it's, it, you can make it sound very clear cut, uh, but in reality, it actually, there's a little bit of a philosophical debate mm. in, on, you know, exactly what does that mean? Um, but in general, what we're trying to do when we're talking about code without side effects is that we we don't want when we look at a function we don't want that function to change uh something where we can't see that it changes so um you know 
in in C# -sharp or in Java, for example, you can have a mutable object, you know, an object with you know settable properties or methods that can change the internal state of the object, and you can pass an object as an argument to another method. And what that method can do then is it can change the state of that object. So when the method returns, you know, the input has changed, not the output of the of the method, but the input has actually changed because you pass, you know, objects by reference. Now, John Skeet is going to come after me because the objects are actually by value, but the value is a reference. Never mind. <laughs> um, but but the fact is, you know, C-sharp and Java objects tend to be mutable. And if you change those mutable objects, you know, within methods calls, we would also consider that to be a side effect in the sense when you if you're trying to, you know, step through with a debugger, you will see that that object actually changes the state. So we would also often consider that a side effect. Um, but we're in a little bit of a philosophical sure. debate here because you know it may not actually change the entire observable state of the system but you know when we're talking about you know trying to fit the uh, the code into our brain and trying to understand what the system does you know it really helps if we don't have all of those side effects to keep track of you know when we're just trying to understand what the code does and you're so saying that now as an f-sharp programmer and i'm coming <laughs> as a c-sharp programmer and going right. you know what pretty much everything i do is doing all the things you don't you're saying are side effects. I read right. from a yes. database. Yes. So you know, maybe we could argue whether reading from a database is a side effect or not, but I certainly display that on a screen, so there's my side effect. Right. I write, I update, I make HTTP requests, I do a ton of things, I respond to clicks, I call yes. other web services. And that's really important. It and, is, it is. And what it you're saying now, or what it sounds like, and I know I know you're gonna tell me why it isn't, but um <laughs> What you're saying now is that it sounds like that's bad in F-sharp. Uh, yeah. Well, it, it actually gets even worse because we only talked about side effects now. But actually, if, what we often after is uh, that we want fun functions to be pure. Um, another word for that is that we want them to be referentially transparent. Um, and the other quality that also needs to be in place besides not having any side effects is that functions must be deterministic. And what that means is that it, they mo must always return the same value, the same return value for the same input. Um, and to begin with, when you talk about determinism to, you know, object-oriented programmers, they say, well, yeah, we understand what that means because, you know, two plus two is always four. And if you have, you know, if you want to reverse a string, you say, well, here's the string foo, you reverse that, that's, that's always oof. So everyone can sort of buy into that. Yeah, that sounds reasonable. But what about, you know, querying a database, for example? So you're querying a database. You're saying, well, I want the um, I want all the reservations that I have in my reservations table for next Friday. So you pass not the word next Friday, but you actually pass the date and you run that query today and you get, you know, back that you have five reservations for that particular date. Now you take the exact same query and run it tomorrow. You pass the same input argument, but now you have more reservations in the system. And instead of getting, what did I say, you know, the number five back, maybe, yeah, now, now you get the number 10 back. So that's not the same result, even though you're passing the same input argument. And, and you know, an object-oriented or an imperative programmer would often say, but it's not, it's, it's still deterministic because it's determined by the state of the database. And I completely understand, you know, why it gives me that answer. And, and you know, as a functional programmer, then we say, yes, I understand it as well, but it just doesn't fit the, the description of determinism as defined by that very, you know, um, strict rule that the same input must always produce the same output. It's just not deterministic. 
So now we're at this situation where pure functions can have no side effects, must be deterministic. And basically everything that you just mentioned, all the reasons why you'd ever have for wanting to write software, you know, putting stuff on the screen, sending off emails, putting data on disk and so on, you can't do that with, with pure functions. So pure functions in themselves are utterly useless. And it, 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 it gets even worse because it turns out that when you start to think about them, you can't even call them. Or if you call them, you can't see what the value is because how would you ever know what the return value of a pure function is? You need to put it on screen, right? But putting thing, things on, on screen is actually a side effect. So you sort of need sort of something that can handle a pure function like a set of tweezers or tongs or whatever you want to call them, you somehow need something that can manipulate a pure function in order to even interact with it. Uh, so you so you need some impure code as well. So all functional programming languages give you an opportunity to also have impure functions. And imp impure functions are basically just the, the things that you know from C Sharp and Java because those are functions that have no rules associated with them, so they can do anything, including calling the pure functions. So, so what we do in functional programming is that we say we like pure functions for lots of other reasons, even though they, it feels like they're totally useless. Um, they are useful for a lot of other reasons because it turns out that they're often very composable. They often tend to be very testable, very easy to unit test. Um, and there's just basically lots of other uh, very, very um, nice qualities that make you know, pure functions. Once you get into the mindset, it makes it very, very easy uh, to program with those. Uh, so that's why we like them. But we also realize that we need our impure functions as well. So, so functional programming is the the art or the goal of maximizing the pure code that you have while minimizing the amount of impure code that you have. And we still realize that you, we can't get rid of all the, all the impure code. We need some impure code in order to interact with the external world. Um, so it's just trying to strike the balance where we have as little impure code as possible and as, as much pure code as possible. So then when, when we come back to, yeah, absolutely, when we come back to the rejection of something now, are we talking about rejecting impure functions from being called by pure functions or by passing in? Where, where does the rejection come in? That, that's that's very close to where we actually end up being because um, if you look at, if you think about, uh, you know, pure versus impure functions, that's two groups of, of functions um, where we say, well, for impure functions, there are no rules. They can do whatever we want. So we can call... Like save to the database and present yeah, the yeah, screen and, and absolutely, send absolutely. emails. Okay. So, so that also means that if you have two pure functions and you want to call one pure function from another one, there are no rules. So, you know, you can do that. That's perfectly, you know, a valid thing to do. And you can also call a pure function if from a an impure function because, again, there are no rules for impure functions. So they can do whatever you you want them to do. Uh, if, on the other hand, you have two pure functions, they can also call each other because it doesn't change, you know, one pure function calling the other pure function doesn't change that the first one is, is impure. But the fourth combination is not possible. You cannot call an impure function from a pure function because if you do that, calling the impure function from the pure function will either cause a side effect to happen or somehow be non-deterministic. And that would make the calling pure function that would also make that one impure 
if that makes sense. Sure, but and you are considering yeah. the impure one to be a dependency in that case. Is that is that where that that would actually be the case? Yeah, if you're trying to do that, then then you're sort of calling into an impure dependency. That's what we do when we do dependency injection in in C# Sharp and Java. Is that we have you know again we have one method that calls another method on another on, on another object, uh, and that's. And, and, you know, it, it turns out to not normally be a problem in, in uh, object-oriented code because we don't really make that distinction between pure and impure because that's not what the object-oriented paradigm is about. But the functional paradigm is all about making this distinction between the stuff that's pure and the stuff that's, you know, impure because all the stuff that's pure is basically has some sort of relationship to mathematics. So there's a lot of things you can sort of um, – establish uh that that holds as as universal constraints if you will for for all the pure stuff i feel that i'm i'm rambling a little bit again here no, no, but, uh, so you use the word cannot a lot of times yeah this can do yeah. something this cannot <laughs> so with, with f sharp um right. does f sharp somehow do you flag methods uh if do you call them methods or do you call them functions excuse me um, I normally, when we talk about functional programming, I tend to call them functions. Sure. Uh, but in F# you can also have methods because it can do object oriented as well. Um, but then, are are the pure ones marked or known about by the compiler in some way, and the impure ones marked or known about, and you will not compile, will not get a runtime or something exception if you attempt to do something that you've listed as cannot be done. Right. In, in F sharp, no. Um, it's, that's not the case. So, so what happens in F sharp is more like it's, um, if you have something that you, let's imagine for, for a moment that we have a function that up until now was, was pure. But then you need to change it a little bit and you figure out that you want to, you want to call an impure function or an impure method. Like, let's say, for example, you just want to know what's the time. You know, non you know, asking for the current time is non-deterministic because every time you ask, you get a new answer back. Does that make sense? Right. So, so now you have a de dependency on the system clock, if you will. So, if you imagine that you had a function that up until that particular point, up until that change was, it was pure. And now you're calling into, you know, date time dot now and you get the current time and you use that for something and you, then you return, you know, a value based on what the current time is. That's still going to compile in F sharp. But what happened was that the function that up until you made that change was pure, now it's impure because it's no longer deterministic, if that makes sense. So, so in the F sharp world, when I say a pure function cannot call an impure function, what basically just happens is that the pure function becomes impure. It's not that the compiler, it, that it doesn't compile or anything. It's just that it, you know, the function becomes impure, if you will, by definition. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's not enforced by the compiler. So if you want to make that distinction, if you think that distinction is important, then, um, you sort of have to exert a little bit of discipline, uh, for yourself because there is no tooling that will actually help you do that. So that, that actually raises a very good point. Why is it important? Yeah. So why is it important? Um, you may decide that it's not, um, but one of the things that happens when you start to have pure functions is that um, 
a lot of the stress that you normally feel as a programmer when you when you're looking at a big code base and you sort of say, you know, I, I really don't understand what's going on here. It's it's legacy code. I didn't write all of it, and maybe I did, but I wrote it six months ago, and I can't remember what I did back then, and so on. And you're just trying to fit it all into your head, and so somehow if if it's a sharp code or Java code or poorly written a sharp code for that matter, um, you're basically saying, well, I have you know ten thousand lines of code, and you know there are no guarantees anywhere. So I basically need to fit all of those ten thousand. 10,000 lines of code into my head in order to try to understand how everything actually behaves together. Whereas if you have pure functions, you can basically just say, well, there's a section over there where I know there will, no, there will be no surprises. It will only, the only thing that will happen there is based on the input into that area over there. And it will have no side effects and it will just return value. And it would always return the same output for the same input. And it just means that, you know, if you have a huge chunk of your code base that behaves like that, I'm not saying it, it disappears, but there's a lot less to worry about, if you will. So it takes a lot of the strain off your, you know, the stress that you have in order to try to, you know, fit the code into your brain all the time. And, it, and I'm not saying it's not a silver bullet. It doesn't take everything away, but it just makes it much simpler. Um, so... Um, there's a nice quote, uh, and I can't remember, sorry, um, there's a nice quote by uh, Dijkstra, you know, Edsger Dijkstra, who um, he gave his um, Turing acceptance speech back in 1972, and he said something like about, you know, he talked about abstractions, and he wasn't talking about functional programming, but he just talked about abstractions in general, and he said something like, um, the purpose of abstractions is not to, to make things unclear, the purpose of abstraction is to introduce a new semantic level where everything is absolutely precise and one of the things you can do with pure functions is that you can start to introduce um, abstractions which are absolutely precise because it is completely determined you know you have your input and the input completely determines what's going to happen and now you can start to look at you know so, so this is where this is where a language like Haskell becomes that's where it gets this reputation of being this ivory tower academic language because it, now it starts to talk about abstract algebra and things like monoids and then it starts to talk about category theory and things like functors and applicative functors and monads and, and stuff like that. But the fantastic things about those things, once you just get what – you, what you really need to do there is to basically just get over the hurdle that the names, the words sound scary – but once you get over that hurdle and say, okay, so the, the word sounds scary. I've never heard the, the word monoid before. Uh, but once you get over that, it's basically, it's a very simple concept. And, and there are intuitive rules that tell you how a monoid behaves. And, and once you get that, you can basically say, oh, that's a monoid. And I complete, now I don't need to think about that anymore. It's just, just, just sort of a thing that you just park in the part of the brain and say, I understand what that is. And, and it's, I know that, you know, it's, it's one of the new things that I'm trying to teach people at the moment is just to say, well, okay, I know the words are Greek, but it, the concepts are actually quite easy to understand. Um, and you probably just have to invest a couple of hours in understanding what it is. And, and then it just, it applies in so many ways that you, it's just wonderful. Um, and a lot of functional programming is just like that. So once you just sort of understand the universal abstractions that are involved, um, you can build quite complex systems out of them. Um, 
on on very um, on, on a fairly small set of of, of well known well very well described abstractions, and that's what you can do with pure functions. So that's why we like pure functions. If that ramble, if that rant, you know, answers the answers your questions. <laughs> that's the end of part one of my interview with Mark Seaman. Part two will be out in a few weeks. The opening music was the return by Nisi23 from the album 11 and 12, and the closing music was Rebel Blues by Sol Rebel.